Hello, everyone. How are you tonight? You doing well? Uh, I don't know what that's about, but it's great to be with you tonight. Uh, man, I love coming here. I just love being here. Uh, you're just so nice to me. I, I do. I love it here. And it's just exciting to, to be in a room where there's so much expectancy. There's such a sense of expectancy here tonight uh, amongst this room. And uh, it actually just feels like, you know, I, I should try to go as quickly as I can to get out of the way to see what, what it is that what God's going to do by way of speaking to us. I, I don't know if you know what you've come to here. Um, I think it's fair up front tonight to give you a warning. Rooms like this are incredibly dangerous. Some of you are laughing. It's not working. Here, here's the thing. What we're doing here tonight could change everything for you. You come in here thinking you'll have just kind of a nice evening. Maybe hang out with some friends, waiting for the, the beer later. You're, you're just sort of like, you know, and you maybe you think, yeah, maybe along the way God might do something. And, and I, I just, uh, I don't know what it is. I actually, as a pastor, I find it incredibly frustrating that this is true. At week in and week out on Sundays, I preach sermons to, to our church. And, and, so this is frustrating me because there's something about conferences and these kinds of environments that God does something different than he does on normal Sundays. I have no theology for this. I'm just saying this is the way it works. I don't know why. And it bothers me. Because I'd like to think this should happen every Sunday, but it just doesn't. And it's on my list of things to take up with God. And all that's to say, I, I really have faith that tonight there's some of you who your entire life will change. And even as I say that, you're thinking, oh yeah, it's probably him, right? Now, it could be you. You might have come here just for a nice evening, but, but your life could change tonight. And that's dangerous, but it's also incredibly exciting. And that means when we're together, you should do everything you can to be brave, to listen for God, to pray for one another, you know, in one sense, conferences are like a strange little bubble, a little dispensation that you're allowed to be slightly insane for a small period of time. People will give you a dispensation for that. And it's possible that that slight insanity will take over your life. And what you thought was insane, maybe in a room here this weekend, becomes a new way of living. It's possible that that maybe it's the way that God has made you to live all along. And so I would challenge you, be open to God, listen for Him, and be brave, and pray for one another. I would challenge you that as much as you can, receive prayer. As much as you can, have people pray for you, and pray for one another. Because when you do that, you put yourself in a posture of experiencing and responding to God. And things will probably change for a lot of you. Okay, so you're still here, so we'll go on. Uh, as I was uh, preparing, 
to, to be with you this weekend. I, I, I was anticipating that there would be roughly 300 people, and I think there's more. So, uh, you know, my, some of my sermon for tonight, what I want to talk to you about, it, it doesn't apply as well because I was planning for 300, so now there's too many. So sorry about that ahead of time. Well, maybe just, maybe just 300 of you need to do it. That's all, that's all it'll take, and, and then it'll be effective. I'll get to that in a minute. I, I'm, I have an incredible capacity to be encouraged and also like really discouraged. Do you, do you have this in your life where in the span of even one week, you can feel really excited about something and then really discouraged and depressed within one week? Have you ever had it happen within one day? Have you, have you ever had that happen within like an hour? How about like a half hour? How about a minute? I've had it happen within a minute. And it doesn't happen all the time within a minute, but there was this minute that happened to me that uh, I, I it, it was really strange, and it was in this minute that God began to do something uh, in changing me. I um, uh, I've had an incredible opportunity this past year, as uh, James said, I'm a pastor in Denver, Colorado, and uh, it would take too, way, way too long to describe it, but ultimately we were a part of an initiative with a series of churches, ended up that ju- just short of 70 churches preached the same sermons over three weeks about how God would want us to love our neighbors. And these were Catholic, Episcopal, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Vineyard, Baptist, all kinds of churches, and a friend of mine and myself got to write these sermons and they even put like videos up describing what we were doing. And this was in conjunction with the mayor's office. So it was like a really exciting initiative to be a part of. Thousands, tens of thousands of people heard the same sermons over three weeks in our city. Isn't that pretty cool? Super exciting. The last week of this initiative, we threw a huge party to sort of represent that neighboring thing, you know, that we wanted to be a part of our neighborhoods. And we threw a huge party, and the mayor, the mayor of our city, came to our church service for this party. It was really fun. And, you know, it's also a little nerve-wracking. There's the mayor sitting there looking at you. And so I preached. I preached my guts out. I preached, you know, about what I thought God could do in our city and how he was going to see people, draw people into relationship with him, and how the city would know that God is alive by what we've done. And I'm, you know, I'm like doing it. Sweating. I wasn't sweating, but I was, I felt like I was sweating. I was, I was passionate. I was shouting. I was whispering. So you know it's really good, right? Even cried a little. Didn't really cry, teared up, but it was like crying. Felt like crying. That's like crying for me. I have two emotions. I'm either angry or happy. So, so for, for me to, to, to tear up, that counts for me. And so I'm doing that. And, you know, there's the mayor, and he comes up, and he says, Jay, that was incredible. It was incredible. What you did, that was amazing. You know, sitting in your church, listening to you preach, that was amazing. I went, well, thank you. I'm so encouraged. You know, I'm looking, the mayor, the city, the party. He's, I'm just so encouraged. And then he says, maybe you should, like, use that speaking gift for something that will be more effective. I went, what? what? I'm, I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. I was feeling good a second ago. I'm sorry. I missed, I missed that. He said, listen, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but you know, you're, a, you're a good communicator. You know, most pastors are just kind of blah, 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 blah. You know, they're just saying different random stuff, and it kind of helps people feel better for a bit. But I think you could actually do something. <laughs> Have you ever considered politics? 
And I went, no, no, I, I've never considered politics. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, maybe I should consider politics. And, and, uh, and he, he, then, he then, and then he said, he said, well, you know, because this was great, but at most, how many people are here? You know, there's like 500 people over your services. How many people? Six, 700, maybe 800 people over your services. That's not very many people. You know, like, what would it look like for you to speak in a way that would influence, like, thousands and tens of thousands in cities? You know, you could do that as a politician. Because, you know, 800 people, I mean, what are 800 people going to do? They're going to do nothing. They're not going to do much. But you could affect tens of thousands as a politician, as a communicator. And, 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 and I'm thinking, well, 800, 800 felt like a lot a minute ago. <laughs> felt pretty good, actually. I was really encouraged a minute ago. He said, you know, even in this network, in this initiative, you've preached to tens of thousands of people. And, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. But, you know, our city is like a quarter of a million, and the Denver metro is 2.5 million people. That means, you know, best case scenario, you're not going to affect 2.5 million people, no, no matter what, with whatever it is you think you're doing. And, and you're definitely not going to affect, like, a nation then. I mean, as a politician, you could affect a nation. You can change policies in a city that can affect a nation. Think of how cool that would be. And, I, and more and more, I'm thinking, Paul, politics sounds pretty good. Now that you mention it. And I went from feeling, like, really encouraged. Like, wow, we did this thing with churches in our city and lots of people here in the same sermons. We're going we're gonna to change things. To, we're not doing anything at all. And our best day, we've done nothing. I was, like, so depressed. I was so depressed. And uh, this is a little dirty secret for pastors. It might just be my little dirty secret, but I've, I've heard it from other pastors. So for those, uh, a little dirty secret is, you know, lots of pastors, when they get done preaching or doing different kinds of ministry, they like to watch movies. And usually they choose violent movies. It helps them work out them something. Only the pastors are laughing. But, but you, work, you, you, you just work things out when you watch things like that. And so I went home, and I remember it was later that week. I was really, it really disturbed me. I mean, I'm making fun of it, but it really actually rattled me. I thought, like, am I wasting my life? And I watched a film. Uh, you know, most of you here are Christians, so you've probably not seen this film. It, it's, uh, I, I'm, you know, it's confession that I, that I watched it. But, but I, and I, actually now I've confessed I owned it. Well, but anyway, there's, there, I watched this film, and it, it's, it's, uh, it's called uh, 300. You seen 300? Yeah, what a, what, a, what a powerful film. Okay, so I, I watched 300, and, uh, and I, you know, and, and strangely enough, I felt as though maybe God was trying to speak to me through this. I know that just ruined some of your theology, but, but I felt like God was speaking to me through this, and I went back and I started to research what that movie was made about, and you know that that movie is actually based on real events that really happened. That wasn't just some kind of made-up thing. You, you, know, you know 300. Do you remember... Do you remember this film? I mean, if you, if you don't remember any part, you know, my favorite is, this is Sparta. <laughs> the guy's... <laughs> slow, slow mo shot. You've seen it. See, I knew you'd seen it. You try to make me feel bad. You see it. Anyway, so, so what this film's based on is 480 BC. It's an amazing story. 480 BC. Uh, Persian kingdom is crowding around, taking over the entire world, but is crowding around the nation states of Greece. And they're going to sweep through and take over. And as they're crowding around, kind of nation state after nation state and nation are just signing treaties, effectively giving over all their power. But there's one nation state. And that's 
Sparta, that's the Spartans who say, no, we're not going to let you do this. We're not, we're not going to give in to fear. We're not going to do it. We're fighting back. And through a series of events, even their own, some of their own factions within their nation would not allow them to fight and go to war. So the king, a king, Leonidas, gathered what he called his own personal guard, which was 300 people, and said, the 300 of us will face tens of thousands in a battle. You know, there's ancient accounts that talk about it being 2 million people. It's probably not accurate. What they're trying to say is way too many for 300 to fight. And if you haven't seen the film, God bless you, there's 300, that's probably good, but there's 300 that go and they fight against tens of thousands, but they do it in a really sneaky way. They find this corridor that will come into where, uh, where the army will come in, and it's kind of dubbed the hot gate. They block all of the other areas, and they make it so this army has to come through the gates, effectively this corridor. And so 300 men stand against tens of thousands, and over the course of a week... It's gruesome fighting, hand-to-hand, person-to-person, but they've shrunk their numbers down because they kind of have to go through this narrow corridor, and they can actually fight them. And they hold them off for a week, some say two, and over that time, they kill, well, some, again, the numbers are funny, but five, six, some say as many as 10,000 of the enemy, 300 Men stands against tens of thousands and they kill thousands. Now, it's a cool story. It's kind of an interesting movie, an interesting thought. But uh, I don't know about you, if you're kind of realistic and you think about that movie, you think about that story, it's tempting to just listen to that and just think, well, that was, that's kind of a cool thought. It's kind of a dumb thing. I mean, really what they did is 300 people lost their lives for nothing. I mean, they killed a lot of people. All right. Yay. But they, they could not. I mean, it's just effectively delaying the inevitable. You know, it's just delaying the inevitable. I mean, they're, they're, then, then after that, then what? Then they came rushing through. I mean, like, wow, those 300 guys died. And it would be tempting to just think it's delaying the inevitable. But what's interesting historically about that moment is those 300 men who died, they didn't just, it wasn't just about the numbers, they, they awakened the nation. They awakened the nations surrounding to say, if 300 have the courage to stand, then we surely must stand up. If 300 can inflict that kind of damage, then the rest of us should fight. We should not surrender. We should not quit. The truth is, change happens in cities and in nations and in the church of Jesus Christ because a few stand against fear. And a few stand up and it creates a ripple effect throughout the world that says, we should not be afraid. And I'll tell you, 
I, I find in my own heart and also as I look at the church, a real battle against fear. What that mayor was doing to me was he was leveraging, accidentally, he was leveraging and pulling out of me fear. Fear that I would be insignificant or useless or nothing. But I watched that. I watched that and I just thought, man, if maybe my faith could awaken just a few, it would be worth it. And what if, what if 300? Okay, 600. The rest of you can play. So there's, what if hundreds said we will not allow fear to dominate our lives? We will be brave and courageous. What if we lived in such a way as though God was actually alive? And that his kingdom is the most valuable thing in the world. And that the life that he offers is more precious than anything else that can be offered. What if we actually lived as though we're in the middle of the only story that really counts? Is it possible that many others for, for the rest of a generation and for generations to come would be awakened to live a life that they never had dreamt possible because just a few, just a few live with courage. Fear stands between you and the destiny that God has for you. Fear. And it's subtle. It's sneaky. It's amazing how fear creeps into the fabric of who we are and it takes on different forms in a way that we can't even recognize it. We're, we live in a world that is so drenched with fear that it's hard to even see. It's hard to see it. You know, you, you even just watch advertisements and commercials and things on television and newspapers that just subtly make you feel fear, that you're inadequate or not interesting. You know, like, buy this deodorant because you're ugly. <laughs> oh no, I'm ugly. I kind of always thought I was ugly. But if you wear this deodorant, beautiful models will flock out of the woodwork and begin to start groping you. <laughs> Does anybody watch that and think, oh, that's, that's probably going to work? You, you don't do that, but what, what they're... <laughs> What they're leveraging is this fear that you're just not that interesting. Car commercials and issues of retirement and finance. They just, they tug at you and make you wonder if you're significant enough or interesting enough or safe enough. And unless we deal with fear purposefully and directly, we actually clog our ears and our hearts from hearing from God. We're disabled because we're so clogged up with the small things that consume us that we can't hear about the great adventure that we're being called into. Tonight, very briefly, I'd like to give us just an anatomy of fear from, from a scripture. Because we have to deal with fear in order to walk and go forward in the faith that God has for us. And this is very important in the Bible. I mean, there's bunches of places. I mean, if you look in Revelation about the people that are thrown into the lake of fire, it's a good list to check out. After murderers and idolaters, you know who's next? Cowards. Cowards. God hates 
how fear dominates us. And he wants us to be free. If you have a Bible, you can look at uh, Numbers chapter 13. I'm going to look at a little anatomy of fear and how it disrupts God's people from doing what they're supposed to do. Because the greatest enemy you have, so the next thing that God's calling you to is what you have presently. (laughs) And the fear that comes with that. Numbers 13 it's a story of how God's people come right up to the edge of the land that they're supposed to go into. You, you remember this story? They're supposed to go in and they send some spies into the land to get a report of the land that they're about to go into. And the spies come back and they report about what they see. This is the account they give Moses, verse 27. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites live in the Negev and the Hittites and the Jezebites and the Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And effectively what they're saying is it's all full. It's all full. There's people everywhere in the land that's supposed to be for us. There's people in all of it. Caleb can sense what's happening. It says, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Stop talking. You're freaking everybody out. This is our land and we're supposed to go take it. Shh, quiet. Doesn't work. Verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they began to spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. (laughs) All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. It's a fascinating little story and it gives you some pieces of how fear can grip a hold of us. Because fear does two really strange things up front. First is fear maximizes our obstacles. It makes our obstacles larger. You know, they go from like saying there's a few kind of big people there to they're all really big. Everyone is a giant there. And more than that, then they say, and we seemed, we felt like grasshoppers and they saw us like that. Do you think they went around and interviewed? Excuse me. Hi, how are you? Yes, we're just visiting this land, deciding if we'll conquer or not. How do we appear to you? Oh, like grasshoppers. Thank you. Just taking a survey. Somehow I doubt that. Their fear then made them assume what others were seeing of them and changed even their perceptions of what was ahead. Now listen, it's important to think about who these people are. These are people that have seen God do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. They were slaves who had been set free and saw God through plagues and pillars of fire and clouds and seas parting and crashing back in, water coming out of rocks. They've been seeing incredible things. And yet they get right to the edge of their destiny and fear is threatening to keep them from it. And if you know the story, you know that 
all of the people end up believing the bad report and God says, never mind, I guess you're not going in. And for 40 years, they just do laps in the desert. Take another lap. And you're going to do laps till you're all dead. Except for Joshua and Caleb. Rest of y'all, oh, there's still a few more alive. Another lap. And they take laps for 40 years until they're all dead, except for Joshua and Caleb who get to go into the land simply because they surrendered to fear. Isn't that a crazy thought? And fear works the same way in your mind, doesn't it? In your heart? Makes the obstacles that are in front of you seem huge. Uh, whatever it is that God's asking you to do right now, your first battle is against fear. It is. It's fear of how someone will perceive you thinking they're going to think this of me or making an obstacle that's actually very small and making it really big. And you know the hardest challenge in your journey, in your lifetime of discipleship, what the biggest moments are going to be for you, it's whatever one is right in front of you. Whatever this one is, is the most important one. <laughs> because it's always in the rearview mirror that we realized our fears were stupid. Have you ever noticed this, that things you were afraid of, years later you look back and you go, why would I ever have been afraid of that? What was wrong with me? I mean, God had been so faithful to me. Why was I afraid to take the next step? It seemed like such a big deal. And then once I did it, I realized... Well, God was with me. Of course it was going to work. Have you ever had that happen? Liars. Sure you have. Sure you have. I think about me when I went to surrender my life to Jesus. And the first time I was going to say yes to Jesus. You know, I'd not been raised in church. God was pursuing me. I had a sense that God was real. And I'm thinking about, man, this is such a big deal. I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if I should give my life to Jesus. I'll be like one of those weird people that are wearing their Christian t-shirts, have their fish on their car and stuff. I don't know. I don't know if I want to become like them. I'm, I'm nervous. I, this is scary. This is like a big deal. There's a lot to risk here. And now I look back and I'm thinking, what exactly were you risking? Like hanging out with your high school buddies, getting drunk? Wow, big sacrifice. What was I thinking? Why did that seem like such a big deal? But it's because it was the one that was in front of me. I remember the first time I went to lead a small group and teach at a small group. I thought, oh man, this is such a big deal. I don't want to blow it. I'm going to start a new small group. There's some of you that are thinking, like, maybe I should start a small group. I should start a Bible study. I remember just being terrified. Terrified. I remember the guy that was leading the small group that I was in was going to help me start the small group. And we're in a group. Uh, we're in the small group. And he says, hey, Jay's going to lead the next small group. And everyone was like, oh, great. Cool. Good luck. And I went around and I started inviting them. Would you like to come to my small group? Like, no, no. <laughs> okay, okay. And I went to my girlfriend, who's now my wife. I said, you're coming to my small group? She goes, no, I don't think so. I'm not coming. <laughs> it's true, by the way. And I... I was like, what? You're not coming. This is not, this is not good. And I, and I just was thinking, there's no way I could do this. What am I thinking? I'm not doing this. And I was like, but I think God told me to do this. So I guess I'm going to do it. And of course, God met me in it. I remember the first time I was thinking about preaching, you know, and 
Or tell me to preach, I just thought, oh, it's such a big deal, it's going to be terrible. And it was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. But I did it, and God was in it. And he was faithful. And I remember thinking about being called to plant a church, and it was so clear, it was so clear that it was God, and that we were called to plant a church. And I just remember thinking, oh no, this is crazy. I can't do this. This other place where I am is just so much better. I can't take that next step. This is perfect right where I'm at. And then, of course, eventually, you, I overcame our fear. We come, and you know what? I mean, if, if I could just keep going, I could tell you about things I'm afraid of right now that I'm thinking are a really big deal. And even as I preach them this second, I realize they're probably not that big a deal. I'm just making them bigger than they are. If you have anything in your life that when you go to talk about it, you start making lots of excuses in a row... Maybe the obstacles are not nearly as big as you think they are. And it's simply taking the next step, a step of faith to overcome that obstacle. It's realizing that it's about actively pursuing a life with God that will enable you to become the person you're supposed to become. You might be right on the edge of a destiny that God set up for you and you just simply have to say yes. You don't have to have it perfect. You just have to say, yes, you just have to participate. This can happen a bunch of different ways. I mean, sometimes you know things you're called into because there's things that make you angry. And so that means that that might be something you're called to be a part of. You know, often when people are angry, instead of like actually doing something about it and pursuing that as a call, we just blog about it. Let me let it out. Okay, and you, you, you just blog cynically about things. As I'm with people and I'm talking about issues of church and life in the kingdom and faith, and I'm just amazed at how many people are church experts because they sit in church and they, they are just assumed that they know what there is to know and that, you know, big church and small church and what ministry should be and what ministry shouldn't be. And you know what? Go do something. Maybe you're frustrated because God's calling you to do something. Maybe you're frustrated in the church you're a part of and the leadership you're in because God would ask you to do something. Just make a step. Do something. And I'll tell you what, you probably won't be nearly as cynical because you will learn things about that. But cynicism can be just a mass form of fear and cowardice because it's much easier to critique other people's steps of courage than it is to live out our own courage. And often when we observe things that need to be changed, it's God asking us to respond. Ultimately, what's amazing about this story to me is, is how they, they become more comfortable in the desert, in the middle of nothing, than this incredible thing that God has offered them. I think back on different times in my life on how I could live with things that I now recognize were just nothing and useless. But the reason why I live with them for so long is simply because they were familiar. I was just used to them. It was just things that were familiar to me. And risk and faith challenges fear that's often rooted in just security and comfort. You know, we love to feel comfortable. We have so many little comforts. You know, if, if you just want to test this, just notice what happens when the internet is down 
for like five minutes. You know, the wireless doesn't work. It's like, this is, this is morally offensive. <laughs> this is wrong. I deserve, I am owed wireless. <laughs> We're just so, you know, for me, fast food always shows how, how comfortable I am. You know, if, if, if at McDonald's, they have the audacious claim of saying, if you could just step aside for a couple minutes, we'll get you your, your French fries. And it's just taking a little bit to, to drop another basket. This is crazy. <laughs> really? Really? What are you going to give me for free? You're going to give me something for free, right? <laughs> this is crazy. My food is supposed to just instantly appear. <laughs> I mean, think of how crazy that is. And it's because we are so secure and we are so comfortable and the kingdom of God cuts 180 degrees against that. It says that for you to respond to God, your comfort and your security will most certainly be threatened. And you will have to move from what is familiar and safe. You'll have to stop worrying as much about what people think about you. And the comfort of the friends who just appreciate your little quirkiness. And, and, and if you take a risk, it will change your friendships. It will change your family. It, there's some of us that are just afraid of how our parents might perceive us. How our friends will receive us taking a risk. And it, it's just more comfortable to just keep managing their expectations than it is to step into that which God is making clear to us. And that is fear. That's subtle forms of fear. You know, uh, maybe it's around retirement. How will I have enough money? How will I retire? And I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm, I'm realizing with the current economy, there's going to be no retirement. You know, it's all going away. You know, there's no money anywhere. It's going badly. If you talk to any economist, if you're socking your money away for retirement, it is going away quickly. If we don't learn as a generation how to trust in God, we will just be severely depressed. We have to learn how to trust in God for our money. Not just believe that somehow things will be different. I know some of you are like, that's way too cynical. Maybe it is. But comfort doesn't equal happiness. That's a lie. Security does not equal joy. And God presses on those places of fear and security and comfort when he calls us into something. I've come to believe this so much as it relates to calling that I call it the attractive alternative phenomenon. That if someone's called... Always an attractive alternative will surface simultaneously that will enable them to not have to follow calling. Something will surface that will be great and easy and comfortable that will disable them from wanting the calling. And it actually is a test. It's a way that God tests calling in our lives is by putting something else in front of us that's attractive, right? You know, instead of going the hard way and doing all the things that God is asking us, here's an attractive alternative. Single people, you hearing me? Like, no, I don't want to hear you. <laughs> but as God says, listen, I have someone that's going to love Jesus and inspire you in your faith, who together you will do something for the kingdom that you could never do alone. 
you know, you start to, you start to trust that and believe that and pray for that and ask for God to make you into something, all of a sudden, there he is, the attractive alternative. <laughs> you can imagine however you want. I, I, his hair waving in the wind, maybe. I, I don't know, whatever it is. So you're like, no, that's not mine. Whatever it is. It's faux hawk, whatever it is. Just, just see it. See it. I, I've seen this in my life at every single step that I've had to take a risk for calling. Every single step. And if I'm really honest, I can look at times when I, well, I let it grab a hold of my attention instead of pursuing all that God had for me. If I'm really honest, I can see those moments in my history. There's a few where actually I won and it changed everything. It's actually funny enough to me now that when I really feel called to something, I know it's going to be sacrificial, all of a sudden the alternative pops up. I'm like, oh, now I know it's God. Critical one for me was uh, I was, uh, we were planting the church and I was starting to wonder if I should go on staff with the church. Church would, you know, we were like 60 or 70 folks and every pastor, every counselor in my life was saying, you really need to make the jump and work for the church full time. You got to make that jump. And I I was making a lot more money in sales and this thing I was doing, and it was going really well. And I thought, oh, you know, I can keep doing it like this. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And they kept saying, no, no, no. God spoke so clearly. It was actually a trip to here in the UK. And uh, it was my first time ever in the UK. I was about to go speak at a conference. And Danielle and I, my wife and I, were driving into the conference and uh, I'm talking to her in the car and I'm saying, God's just got to speak. If he really wants us to leave this job, I mean, it's a major sacrifice for us financially. If he really wants to leave this job, he's got to speak to us. She's like, okay, but if he speaks, we're going to obey. I said, definitely. We walk into the lobby. I walk into the lobby uh, of this hotel and I walk in, I'm going to check in and there's someone checking in at the counter over here. And he looks over at me and he goes, God's calling you to make a sacrifice. Give it all for him, pastor the church. And I went, wow, you know, we're going to have to discern that. I don't know. It's going to take some, you know, weigh, weigh that, you know. The Bible says to test prophecy, so we'll, we'll do that. So I got home, knowing God had spoken, right? So I got home. I walk into my boss's office. I said, listen, here's the deal. You know, we're planting a church, you know. I feel like God's called us to do that, you know. And that's why I moved here. And, and, and she's like, Okay. I said, and listen, it's time. It's time for me actually to resign. I want to really honor this job. I want to do it well, but I'm resigning. You know, I can do it two weeks, four weeks, whatever you need. I, you know, I really want to do a good job finishing well for you. She said, really? Because you're doing such a good job. You sure you need to resign? I said, yeah, I, re- I really do. I think, you know, I got to do this next thing. She's like, ah, oh, that's too bad. I said, yeah, that's too bad. Why don't you talk to, you know, the other managers, figure out what's going to work. Okay, said, sure. So a little bit later, the director of the whole company comes walking down to my office. Yeah, come on in. Comes in, sits down. He says, hey, listen, I just heard from you know, your manager that you've resigned. I said, yeah, I've resigned. He said, oh, man, that's just way, that's really too bad. I mean, I said, yeah, you know, I, you know, sometimes you just got to move on. There's nothing wrong. I want to make sure I end well with you. So well, it's just great. He said, here's the thing. As we're talking, we're realizing we're probably going to have to hire two people to do what you do initially, for sure, but I think maybe long-term. And so really what I'd like is for you to be here to help train those people more effectively. 
I said, well, I mean, I can do it. I mean, you think four weeks would be enough? He says, no, 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 no. I mean, I think it would take like six months, six months or so. I said, oh, okay, well, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, he said, well, here's the thing. Listen, before you say no, uh, we'll just pay you double. For those six months, we'll pay you double. And I went, well, I'm sorry, what'd you say? So we'll pay you double. Well, I was going to have to take a huge pay cut to do the thing with the church. Huge pay cut. And I also was going to, if the church did not grow as a result of that, we were going to run out of money in about six months. The church would not be sustainable. And so this was, you know, it was faith. And I said, oh, well, he said, hey, why don't you call your wife? Why don't you think about it? Great. I call Danielle on the phone. I said, D, you're not going to believe it. God has provided. You know, I, I, this guy, <laughs> all it's going to take is another six months. I mean, what's another six months, right? What's another six months? Another six months, we're going to get double pay. That's going to set us up where we can go another number of months, you know, with because, you know, the church thing is the most important thing, obviously. So we'll be able to, we'll be, I'll be able to do the six months. And, and she's listening to all, she's just totally silent. And I get done and she goes, so... And that's all really exciting. That's, that's cool. But here's the thing. Did God speak or not? Yeah, well. <laughs> there is that. I said, you know, right. You're right. You're right. Okay. Okay. Good. Walked down to his office. I can remember it so vividly. I walked down to his office and I'm like reaching for the door. Come on. Okay. You know, open the door. Go in. Hey, Listen. Sit down. I said, no, I actually don't want to sit down. Here, here's the thing. I'm going to turn down your offer. Uh, I'm sorry. He said, hey, sit, just sit for a minute. Come on. I said, no, no, I, I, yeah, I just, I just need to say no, okay? I got to turn down the offer. He said, well, here's the thing. I know your family lives back in Ohio. We're going to open a new branch there. I can give you some airline vouchers. I'll give you, da, 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 give you some travel things. How about I give you some vacation in there? You take a month off in, in the middle, full paid. It'll be fine. And I actually laughed out loud. I went, I just, no, no, uh, no, no, I, no. The answer is no. I can't think about this. I just have to say no. The answer is no, no. There was a guy that I'd been sharing my faith with the whole time I worked there. And he, he leaned forward. I'll never forget this. He leaned forward and he goes, God spoke to you, didn't he? And I went, yeah, he did. And he said, well, I can't compete with that. Well, I mean, I tried, but I can't. <laughs> well, well, yeah, you did. Thank you for that. And no. I remember driving, even driving home that night, just thinking, what, what, am, I, what am I doing? This is so foolish. This is so foolish. And it was foolish. I mean, any economist, anybody looking at that would say, that's just foolish. What, six months? But it wasn't about six months, and it wasn't about money. It was about obedience. That's what it was about. It's about saying yes to something that God is asking. Without even knowing what comes next. And the thing is, I'd, lo- you know, I'd love to say, and, and that's when the glory fell on me, and money just started piling up inside of my house. <laughs> And I went, see, the Lord has provided in all things. And it was exact, exact opposite. You know, we got right to the end of six months and we're like almost out of money. And I'm like, oh, this was such a, this was so terrible. And, and, and I would dial the place I worked, I, all except for the last number. 
just thinking, can I please have my job back? You know, like I'm, I'm just going to, but you know what? You know, you really do know the end. Of course, God provided. Of course he did. He made a way. And if he hadn't, it wouldn't matter because it was about who I become and what God wants to do. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about how we respond to him and who we become in the process. I know what you're thinking. I, I, know, I know how fear works. Fear challenges us to negotiate, but you don't negotiate with God. When God asks a thing of you, you simply obey. And, and I love negotiating. I negotiate all the time. I, I love saying things like, well, if I do that, then what's going to happen? If you ever try that game with God, it's strangely silent. It's quiet. Even if, you know, what is that exactly going to cost me? What's that going to cost me in the end? Like, how much should I write the check for? God just says, just sign the check. I'll I'll fill in the cost for you. Just sign it. Choose to be a person that obeys in all the places of your life, and I will tell you what it costs. I'll tell you as you go. We all know that this kind of courage is what we were meant to live for. You and I were meant to live brave, courageous lives. Lives of sacrifice. You know it. I know you know it. You know it in your heart that you were meant to live for something more. You were meant to be a part of a story that's larger than your own little story. You know it. You know how I know you know it? It's because I love watching movies and I love watching people watch movies. You know, even being in the movie theater, watching people watch movies where like different lines, different things are said and you can watch people rise. There's something in it that just speaks to the human heart of who we were always meant to be. Like, like this line. Fight and you may die. Run, and you will live, at least for a while. I know, I know it's about fighting the English, so it probably isn't as helpful here. But, but, but <laughs> still a good line, right? I, you know, so, so there's this great line, and he keeps going, right? And he, and he says, he says, many years from now, you're growing old and you're lying in your bed waiting to die. What would you give for just one chance? Just one chance. You know the way he says it. One chance to come back to this field and to say that you may take our lives, but you will never take our freedom. And then he shouts something indiscernible. It's probably in some other language. They all, and they all... <laughs> I'm mocking another language. That's probably not best. But they, they, they. Now listen, I mean, seriously, notice your own emotional temperature. Even as I say that, it doesn't just bring you back to the movie, does it? It brings you to something that's much deeper. Something inside of you that says, yes. I want to live for something. I want to give my life And you know what's so crazy about even that film, even that scene, is most of them die. 
And it's like this vicious, terrible thing. I mean, like, you know, you just, you just fast forward a little bit. There's like, legs are coming off and arms are flying off. And you're like, oh, that's not good. I bet he regrets it. I bet he regrets it. He would, he would much rather be old and dying. But, but there's... What we know. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like, I've been cut off, I guess. I, what, we, what we know in the kingdom is that death brings life. And that all that we see and all that we are will one day, not long from this one, be but a strange dream. And if the story that we're a part of is true at all. It says that God is reconciling all things to himself. And one day all things will be made right. And all pain and all suffering and all worry and all fear will be swallowed up. The power of his resurrection is he redeems all flesh and all creation. And these moments, these idle moments where we make little negotiations with God and decide whether we'll really trust him fully or not will all seem so silly in light of his glory, his power, and his majesty. And the things that we vote on that will seem so small compared to the vastness and the beauty of his kingdom. And it's moments like this. This night, that God by his spirit comes along and he says, you hear that? Why don't you give that thing up? Why don't you give up your control, your desire to control every little piece? Could you just trust me with your life again? Could you just trust me with your money and your relationships and your time? Could you just trust me with that again and think of what we might do? And as you just say, I You say out loud, before I even know what you ask me, God, I choose to obey. And anything, anything that is in the way and resists me from obeying, I give you permission to remove it. To deal with it violently. Do whatever you need to do to put me in the middle of an obedient life with you. And whatever stands in the way, deal with it. Change it, move it. Destroy it, do whatever needs to be done that I might fully obey and that your life might be fully lived in me. That's one of those prayers that you're pretty sure God will answer. There's lots of other prayers. That's one that even as you say it, you go, oh no, this one's going to work. I know it's going to work. And I ask you tonight to be brave. To be brave. And I... I have a sinking suspicion that God, by his spirit, as we say, I'll do whatever, I'll go wherever, I'll sacrifice whatever. I have a a sinking suspicion that God, by his spirit, might draw near and take fear right out of your heart and fill you with new kinds of faith to live a life that maybe you never imagined possible.